You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. If you're one, an audience listener out there that's kind of like, oh, hellbender, aquatic salamander, eh, I'll skip to the episode on the kangaroo right. or something more. Right, right. Don't do it. Well, listen to both of them. What can they teach us? The amphibians serve such a critical role that I think that's why one of the reasons scientists are just so frightened with this mass extinction event going on. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So this will be a f- more fun story this week, right, Angie? Oh, this is going to be an amazing story. Uh, I had a lot of fun in preparation this week for the Hellbender. Yes. <laughs> what the heck's a Hellbender? What is well, a Hellbender? I don't know, Chris. Do you know what a Mud Devil, a Mud Dog, Grampus, Devil Dog, some of my favorites coming up, Snot Otters? Uh, I know. <laughs> it's that. <laughs> or the, 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 the other, yep. the other great one is Lasagna Lizards. <laughs> and we'll, that one we can explain. The snot otter and the lasagna li- lizards, we can definitely explain some of those nicknames. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It is amazing, amazing species this week. The One of the largest amphibians on Earth, the giant salamander. And here in North America, ours is called the hellbender. Yes, yes. And Chris, it's not just the fun names or this cool species that we're going to cover this podcast. Mm-hmm. Aquatic salamander, amazing. This podcast reminds me why I love our, well, this isn't a real job, but why mm-hmm. I love this this podcast, mm-hmm. passion project that we do, because I learned so much this week, and I'm super I- excited to share it with everyone. And I'm also going to confess on air that truth be told, I think I've been living in the dark or mm-hmm. under a rock because with all of my zoological knowledge, allegedly so, mm. I didn't know about these guys. I'm going to be honest. So if you're one, an audience listener out there that's kind of like, oh, hellbender, aquatic salamander, eh, I'll skip to the episode on the kangaroos right. or something more. Right, right. Don't do it. Well, listen to both of them. <laughs> but right, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't skip this. You... I, of course, am a person that prides myself on my love for anything with hooves and horns and antlers. But man, oh man, like I said, I feel like I was living in the dark, not really knowing about hellbenders or how amazing they are and their physiology and that it's a North American story. So for our Mm. listeners that are from North America, Mm. uh, it's a fascinating conservation story of definitely of hope. Mm-hmm. But also of critical importance. These guys are super, super important in their ecosystems mm-hmm. and they play a critical role and they're kind of like a canary in the coal mine for water quality. So we're going right, to talk a lot about right. water today. And for those of you that don't live in North America, there's other cool aquatic salamander species that I know Chris is going to talk about as, as well. Yeah, you you have of the giant, just the giant salamanders. You have the Chinese one, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, and then the Japanese giant salamanders. So they're big in Asia, 
and then the Hellbender here in North America. Plus amphibians, Angie. You know, people are like, oh, okay, why should I care about amphibians? I mean, they're one of the the most endangered classes of animals. You know, the IUCN estimates forty one percent. Forty one percent of all amphibians on Earth are threatened with extinction right now. It's horrific, yeah. It is horrific. And today's episode is going to be a feel good one. So, you know, we're going to bring you, bring you up, but it is important. It's important to understand these animals, you know, what makes them tick. Yeah, and like and Angie physiology said, and why they're so critically important to tell you if your water's clean or not. They need clean water. Mm-hmm. They need clean water. And guess who else needs clean water? Us. Us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we do. We do. Well, and, and, you know, the different classes of amphibians, obviously frogs are a big one. And then the salamanders, the newts. Still one of my favorite episodes of this day, even though it was early on and we were a little yeah. wonky, but yeah. poison dart frogs. Love that episode. They're, episode they four, were, I think. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. It was up there. It, it was, it was a fun one to, to learn. I mean, what we learned about them was crazy. This and then one might, this one has the potential to be better though. And I'm going to tell will, you because. Yeah. I know their name might be Hellbender, but after learning about them this week, I'm in heaven. I still Absolute like Snot heaven. Otter. <laughs> I still like Snot Otter. I'm just like, <laughs> what the heck is a Snot Otter? Uh, their skin secretions. But, you know, it, it, it's a great lead in, too. We have a wonderful interview coming out this week. Ian Riccio from LA Zoo. I had an incredible time talking to him, and he's the curator of reptiles and amphibians there. We talk about the conservation work that he's doing, the work the LA Zoo's doing. So Los Angeles Zoo, my backyard. And then, like, like t- the story today, we talk a lot about the mountain yellow-legged frog, which is a critically endangered frog in my backyard. And Keeping it local. Wa- I love it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, water quality, and these are frogs that live in the mountains, so... What they learned from this frog is definitely being used for other species, but it, it just, it's a fascinating story, a fascinating conservation story, how he personally is working to save the species and repopulate the streams and rivers in our mountains here in California. Because I always thought, Angie, you know, amphibians, frogs like warm, moist environments you know, but no, they're, they're up there in the cold too. They're up there like 4,000 feet. There's amphibians up there living just so fine. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, a, that was just a great interview to do. And just thank you for Zubab, you know, sent a, a beautiful message, joined us on Patreon, but shared that they're going back to school to study wildlife conservation. So, you know, down in Australia, listened to our episode last week and reached out and said, wow, thank you so much, you know, for, what you did or what you're saying for, for their country down there in Australia. And just thank, thank you for the, the emails and support that we're getting. But we have a couple, uh, new reviews on iTunes. Well, yeah, I mentioned last time that we hadn't had any reviews in 2020. Now it's obviously still early 2020, mm-hmm. but there's been a tie. So thank you, Maggie, for giving us a wonderful review on iTunes as well as is Hedios, if I'm saying that right. Um, I S I D H E O S. And not only does it help us get more circulation on and other hosting platforms, but it's fun for me to read too. It helps me stay up late and do the research and uh, mm-hmm. just just keeps us going and knowing that uh, you guys are listening and appreciating it. So 
But yes, I'll just keep giving my push in 2020 to subscribe, rate, and review is super helpful. So thank you. And share. And share. I I see it all the time on social media. I can't thank you enough. Everybody sharing our our episodes and the stories that we're telling uh, about these species. So thank you so much. And, you know, Angie, these we're going to get to it here in a minute, but giant salamanders, I mean, they get big. They get really big. I couldn't believe it. Some of the statistics. That's not otters. I don't, know if they're, I don't know if they're quite otter size. Maybe baby, no. baby otter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or Asian small clawed otters, maybe. Sure. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But not the North American river otters. No, those are pretty big. No, no. But speaking of North America, so, you know, really quickly, uh, the, we're going to North America and specifically in the United States. But just a quick update. You know, in the U.S. right now, according to our Fish and Wildlife Service, we have over 1,200 animals and 700 species of plants that are endangered or threatened with extinction. So that's a hundred animals. Yes, it's a big list. It's a big, big list that are endangered. Now, you know that includes insects, things like that, because insects technically are animals. But you know, that's what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife have down. And looking at North America, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy ecosystem. We, we just have such a diverse ecosystem here where in the north, the tundra and the boreal forest, then you go to deciduous forests, deserts. I mean, I basically live in a desert mixed in with some deciduous forests or evergreen forests, uh, prairies, tropical down by you in Florida. I'm in the swamp. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's January and there's mosquitoes out. What's up with that? <laughs> That is Florida. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, we have a very diverse ecosystem here with a very diverse set of animals and wildlife. And so I just kind of went and looked at, okay, what's our most endangered species here uh, in the United States? So number one Who on the I list guess? is, yeah, who's number one? Who's, who's just like almost extinct in the wild? Red wolf. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Yeah. It's about 14 left in the wild now. You know, so and yeah, 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 definitely go back to that episode. You probably know the numbers. 28 like and 29. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> that recall. Yes. Episode 28 and episode so 29. So impressive. I yeah. just want to play a game really quick. Um, what okay. was Snowy Owls? Snowy Owls was episode 132, I think. Okay. I, I don't know if you're right it. or wrong, but I know it was later. So I'll give you that. Yeah. Well, because we're, oh gosh. Camels. Back Camels. Back. It's about episode 48, I think. I don't Man. know. It's, it's, it's in there though. I just saw it. I, Cause I got through the list. You can't pay, get somebody to pay you for your amazing memory. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I saw it. Yeah. I saw that's it the other su- day. That's like a superpower. And I was like, Oh God, I remember that. I mean, we did that episode. It seems like yesterday, but it was like a year and a half ago. Yeah. It was, it was a while back. Okay. Enough of my game. Now, okay, no, business. no. Red Wolf, uh, tragically is going to probably go back extinct in the wild. Uh, and then whatever we have left might be reintroduced somewhere. It's, it's a story we need to keep uh, looking at. Here's one that was surprising to me. Oh, Oahu tree snails. These are gorgeous shells. So they've been collected and then also invasive species have, have really hurt them. So down in your neck of the woods, you can guess what's critically endangered. Yes. Well, there's the Florida grasshopper sparrow. Yeah. 
I don't have that one. I, okay. I, I, I was to say I can see that I can tell by the look on your okay. face that I was way yeah. off. Um, no, but the, okay. Well, our Florida Panther. Yeah, there you go. In trouble. Yeah, yep. Florida Panther, maybe 150, but probably more around 100 left. And they're going to go, I think, extinct. I just don't, with the expansion of homes. I know. And, they're talking about all these yeah. other major highways growing like right through their habitat. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's really sad. Uh, the Colombian Basin Pygmy Rabbit. This was kind of a cool one to look at. This, this, I mean, this may be something we want to do. It's so dang cute, Angie, but it technically is extinct because the last true wild one died off in 2008. And they've had to crossbreed it with other species. The, the great basin pygmy rabbit, they crossbred it. So you lost those true genes okay. of this one, but there is the zoos in Oregon and Washington have captive breeding programs. They're re-releasing them to the wild. So oh, kudos to those guys up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Down in Florida, the bonneted bat. Oh, yeah. So there's about a population of 3000. The island fox, which is really cool. Here in California. I say that's over by cha- you. Yeah. Channel. Yeah. Channel Islands. Mm-hmm. Yep. But 4,000 in- increasing in those Channel Islands. They're uninhabited, most of them. So it's, it's all like U.S. fish and wildlife. They're protected. Yeah. And th- yeah. And then that leads us to the Ozark hellbender, which is one of the subspecies. And this one's endangered with about 600 left. So that's kind of making out the list of North America. Now, obviously, we'll bounce back, you know, here with different species, but focus on salamanders, Angie. You know, we, we wanted to kind of talk about what a salamander is, you know, because people are like, oh, okay, what exactly is a salamander? I mean, it's an amphibian that, you know, I read it's like a cross between a frog and a lizard mm-hmm. because, yeah, it's not quite terrestrial. Some of them are, but has that moist skin, things like that. Mm-hmm. Long and slender bodies, like I just said, their skin's moist. They're usually smooth, long tails, and like very diverse family salamanders. Yeah. 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 Some have lungs, some have gills, some have neither. They breathe through their skin. Uh, Some have two legs, some have four legs. So very, very diverse. But looking at the giants, these amazing creatures. (laughs) <laughs> are just they're they're beautiful they're they're a beautiful animal I, I think they're they're amazing they're amazing well chris i applaud you calling salamanders beautiful they are they are they're, they're pretty cute <laughs> yes well that's this hellbender i mean its name is a little abrupt perhaps because it has the word hell in it but there's nothing mm-hmm. like that they're very charming we've we covered the axolotti Ooh, another quiz what number was axolotti that was oh uh, episode 37, maybe? Mm, I think you might be way <laughs> off base there. I think it's more recent. I would no, say. No, 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 If I had to guess, I'm going to say 78. It's coming to mind. 78. Versus uh, 33. Are we, play, are, we play, are, we play, are we playing Price is Right rules? Uh, Angie wins. Episode 76. Oh, well, technically, if we play Price is Right rules, I'm over. So, well, that's still, that's good. All right. And then, but anyway, so those are adorable. And I think the hellbender has a similar appeal. Um, not as much frilled gill action going on, Mm -hmm. but they have this flat body and we're going to talk about it makes it helps them out where they live under rocks and streams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
uh, but a flat body and a flat head and just cute little beady, teeny tiny little beady dorsal eyes. Mm-hmm. Of course, slimy skin, but you wouldn't really know that because they're in the water all the time. Mm-hmm. And typical to most salamanders, it has short legs, four short legs, uh, with four toes on the front legs and five on the back. And it has a tail. And the tail is really something in, in the hellbender. It's definitely, I feel like, longer than maybe other mm-hmm. salamanders. And it really helps it keep its balance and kind of propel itself through the water. And their skin color varies a little bit, probably definitely in between the two subspecies and just, uh, with generally kind of, it's going to be a blotchy brown, red brown base color, um, might even have a few dark rust or orange spots in it a little bit if you look closely. Uh, and typical to many aquatic species, it has a pale underbelly. And this coloration is going to help it blend in in the streams and watershed that it lives in blend in. It almost kind of looks like a pretty rock, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, with, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I don't know if it's technically it's camouflage or what, but yeah, I just think that they're really amazing looking in their, their shape of their body and their short little legs. But the key feature of them that I think separates them out from any other salamander, besides the fact that they're fully aquatic is they have these on the side uh, of their body, these loose folds of skin that do look kind of like lasagna noodles, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which I guess is AKA why they're called the uh, lasagna lizard is one right. of the nicknames. And I mean that bumpy part of lasagna, the, ri- the ridged, uh, the ridge, yeah. the ridge part of the, of the noodle. And, they just, yeah, yeah, they almost look like, like they kind of have like a little side skirt on. I've heard mm-hmm. it called when in some of the readings, it was called their skin skirt, which mm-hmm. makes, I just think that's really charming. And it's super critical. We're going to talk about the physiology of their skin, um, as we move through the podcast and why they have these extra lasagna skin. Um, and so, yeah, they kind of look like they, yeah, they have like a little tutu along. Right, 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 right. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but they're, yeah, especially with those cute little beady eyes and that flat, flat head. I don't know. I thought they're very charming. Oh, they're, yeah, they are. They are definitely charming and they're, they're here in our backyards, which is really cool. And the size of these ones that, you know, they can get up to, you know, adults go from anywhere from 12 to 29 or 30 inches. So. 30 to 75 centimeters. They weigh up to five pounds. I mean, 2.2 kilograms. I mean, that's, that's a big, big, big amphibian. Like that's a big one. That's a big yeah. boy. Yeah. I mean, I have my yeah. little workout weights and I think I have like five or six pounders that I'm like, yeah. uh, I can't barely get it over my head. No, <laughs> no but I mean, it's, that's for an amphibian. I mean, you're yes. thinking like a frog, you know, it's, that's a sucker's big. That's like a that's chihuahua. Big. I mean, yeah, seriously, yeah. you know, now, where they range is mostly in the eastern portion of the United States, uh, New York State, you know, in the, uh, the northeast, and then you kind of just go down into the south. So, you know, parts, barely any part of Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. And then they run up through Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia. So for folks that aren't from the United States, that's, that's east coast, uh, just inland. You know, if you go in, Hundred miles or something. That, that's roughly yeah, where they are. Yeah, we have in the a mountain streams. chain there called the Appalachians. And so, mm-hmm. for me, looking at a map, it looks kind of like the Appalachia Corridor, more right, or less. Right. 
and just, you know, Rocky Mountain streams, things like that that you can think of. Now, the other two species, like I said, the Japanese giant salamander is in more the southern portion of Japan, which we covered in Snow Monkeys a few weeks ago. And we're getting downloads out of Japan now, so welcome. You know, I think Hello. some people Yeah, I know. I love um, it. I love it. Konnichiwa to anybody yeah. listening in Japan. Yeah, no, it's yeah, I was excited when I saw that. That we exciting, you know yeah. I'm like they're listening about snow monkeys, I bet. And then the Chinese giant salamander, and these suckers are the ones that get big, Angie. They get can you guess how tall they get or how long? No, but uh just because out of a wild guess would be like four feet. Yeah, six. Six Whoa! feet long. Yeah, like, they can get six feet long. Wow, almost as tall as me. Like an alligator. <laughs> or almost as long as me. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get to them, but they're critically endangered. But they're huge. Huge. Japanese, I think, are like the four feet are they, long Are ones. they aquatic too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Chinese ones, we I know we covered in a conservation news segment at some point. Where they came out, they discovered them, and oh, by the way, there's barely any of them left because people eat them. So they go out and and find them, which is not a good idea because these suckers are so important to our ecosystem. The amphibians serve such a critical role that I think that's why one of the reasons scientists are just so frightened with this mass extinction event going on that 41% of all amphibians that are endangered because these suckers are like our bug control. They, the invertebrates that they remove from the ecosystem is critical. I read a, a science paper study looking at, you know, the importance of amphibians on now, not necessarily the hellbender per se, but amphibians in general. The reason amphibians are so important is keeping invertebrates in check. What scientists are finding and know is invertebrates, they'll eat a lot of leaf litter or plants, things eat leaves that actually releases a lot of carbon in the atmosphere. And you know, you're, you're talking what trillions and gazillions of insects around the world. I mean, the populations, you can't even count. Then you're talking billions and billions of, of amphibians that are out there, you know, it's gotta be in the billions around the world that are eating these things. So they're keeping insects in check. But when you remove the amphibians from the food chain or food web, you know, you're allowing more and more insects to proliferate. So not only are we worried about disease bearing insects, but for human health, but now you're releasing more and more carbon in the atmosphere, you know, again, a big problem. So I found that fascinating. I was like, Whoa, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, just looking at their ecosystem role in general, the hellbender plays a really cool niche. It's both a predator and prey in its ecosystem. And it's evolved that way for, I mean, you'll, you'll get to an evolution, but mm-hmm. tens of millions of years. And ago. they're considered basically like a habitat specialist in order to live in the specific environment that's been stable and they depend on a consistent and they depend on a consistent temperature uh levels of oxygen clarity cleanliness lack of sediment uh, in the water and so it it is a pretty specific habitat niche but they did well for a very 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 long time 
And that's why researchers have call, coined them basically a bioindicator of mm-hmm. stream quality. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a high tolerance for poor, low-quality water. And Chris is going to be talking about water later on in the podcast. But it's uh, we're doing a lot to our watersheds that are not helping them stay healthy. And why researchers here in North America are raising the alarm flags big time about hellbender populations that are crashing. And, and, you know, not only in the Ozark, which Chris talked about earlier about there only being 600, but in the Eastern hellbender, which is the other subspecies, and that's the one that's found mainly through Appalachia, is also really in decline as well. There's probably some that are lost that are from being inadvertently fished, um, or potentially illegally caught for the pet trade. They're not, uh, legal to have as pets. So. Uh, make sure you know that this is not a type of amphibian that you can keep at home. It is illegal to have them because they are uh, classified as near threatened by the IUCN. Or mm-hmm. as Chris mentioned, mm-hmm. the the other the Ozark population is endangered. Yeah, yeah. No, it is, and I mean, even they're finding, which I found fascinating. Why care? Is there is a disease wiping out amphibians around the globe? It, it's a big problem and I, I've seen this in the news and it's the, uh, the chytrid fungus. Is I say yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah. yeah. Or also known as BD. Back, BD. Yeah. I, I won't even try to pronounce that. Yeah. <laughs> Bacterocotyridium dendrobatidis, something like that. It's a fungal disease that's wiping out amphibians across the planet. Very scary. It's a yeah. very epidemic. 90, yeah. 90 species are extinct because of, uh, Chytrid fungus alone and over 500 or more are in steep decline because of this. Fungus. Steep decline. Yeah. And it's, they think it's like, it's, it's spread through the pet trade, you know, originated well, in Asia. Re- mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. So it got spread that way. Now they're finding the hellbenders resistant to this disease. Yes. So they have it in the wild. I think they've, I in think the wild yeah. issues with it under human care. Right. Right. But they're trying to find out why they're resistant and maybe this can help other amphibians. Yeah. They could literally save their brethren. Uh, right. if we can just learn, understand more about why they're able to be when they're in the wild, why they're able to be their carriers for it. Like they all, a lot of them test positive for it, but they mm-hmm. don't have any of the symptoms and they're not right. dying from it. And that is incredible and a huge potential victory if we can figure out why. Why? Yep. Yep. So there you go. Uh, helping all their other brethren across the planet, you know, animals helping animals. Amphibians, Angie, I, evolution is amazing. So I, I went a little bit deeper this week. Oh, good. I've been just kind of I, I didn't do over too it. much. So I'm just going to put my little seatbelt on, sit back and enjoy oh, the ride. Well, these things are so ancient. I mean, these are. No, they are. They're like little swimming Lizard dinosaur, dinosaur things. Not yeah. even dinosaurs. They're older than dinosaurs. They're pre-dinosaurs. I mean, right. they're pre-reptiles. It's so I kind of, I found an interesting paper on talking about the transformation from an aquatic lifestyle of vertebrates to a terrestrial one. You know, that whole coming out of the, the ocean, yeah, that why first step. Yeah. Why did it happen and how long did it, did it take? So it, it actually, because amphibians are kind of like what you would think that middle species or this hellbender 
what you think they would look like coming out of the oceans on the land, like in between, you Uh know, from fish to, uh, say a mammal. So, or a reptile. So this started in the early Devonian 400 million years ago and it took 80 million years into the early Pennsylvanian epic. You know, you can tell an American coined that one. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. actually a Mississippian epic too. I thought it was pretty hilarious. Um, but that was about 320 million years ago. So over 80 million years, such a long, I mean, it's hard for our brains to wrap around that, but that's when animals started to go onto land mm-hmm. and explore a little bit until they finally were land dwelling animals. So that pro- that that whole took over 80 million years. So why why did animals jump from water to land? I mean there's there's a dun- bunch of different theories. One was that like this stubby hellbender, these little limbs, these stubby limbs that some sort of aquatic animal started developing these limbs and it, it helped them in the underbrush like in an aquatic environment. So they were more successful hunters. So over time, they developed these limbs that were just kind of not very well developed, but helped them enough. And then they started to like go out on land a little bit and then go back in the water and go on land and go back in the water and then go on land and stay on land. Um, some theories have them like jumping from pool to pool as a pool of water kind of dried up. They would hop or kind of pull themselves along to another one. That one's been kind of dis- discounted, but from what I can gather, they don't know. <laughs> They're just taking wild guesses. So, uh, well, but it's that's, interesting to think about, you know, that's, you, that's what there's theories are important to have. Absolutely. Right. And just this process, like I kind of dorked out on this a little bit, you know, they said there's two traits that they needed to develop before they could become a terrestrial animal. First were lungs. So they needed to develop lungs first Mm -hmm. to be able to breathe air. Then the arms and legs had to really become more developed, you know, good muscle mass on the trunk so they can actually pull themselves along and survive. Interestingly, lungs develop first. You didn't, you know, you would think, yeah, but lungs developed first in bony fishes Mm -hmm. and these became in the fish instead of lungs, air sacs. Right. Which are swim bladders, Mm -hmm. which they use for buoyancy today. Then the early limbs were just kind of like T-Rex limb, forearms or whatever. And then they've developed and then tell where they could become more developed, where they can pull themselves on land. Other cool stuff they developed in these 80 million years is feeding structure. So like a tongue, like a good tongue that could move food around. Like it's Mm -hmm. just so fun to think about when you know physiology. I know. You know, skin. That wasn't scales, right? Skin. Right. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then sense organs to be able to navigate your environment. See and hear and smell and all that stuff. Yeah. The sense organs still, when I teach that part of anatomy, it just still blows my mind. I know. Still like the fact, obviously I'm a physiology dork, Mm -hmm. uh, but Mm -hmm. the fact that we can like see things is just incredible. Oh, I know. It's even how, yeah, it's, I mean, all of it. so all of it's just, ah, it's amazing. Life is amazing. It is. It is like you walk around, you don't even think about it. You're just, it's involuntary. Like you're just walking. You're moving those muscles all in unison. 
It's you're breathing all the time. Your heart's beating all the time. Your brain's fun. It's just amazing. Biology's so, so just fascinating. It's so fascinating. So that's why I love like what we teach in that first day of class. You're just like, this is so amazing. I'm going <laughs> to yeah, tell you why I this know. is amazing. You know, so fun. Here I, yeah, decades later, you know, not decades, but long time later, uh, I'm still excited about what I teach. So amphibians are cool as a class and ancient. Yes. Very. They first appeared 330 million years ago. So before <sighs> reptiles. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> and then I thought, wow, you know, they, they almost died out because the third mass extinction. So we say today we're in the six, you know, we're in the six and it's, it's, it's not looking good. It's trending downward, but we're going to reverse those trends. We, I know we are. We actually are going to reverse all this. And then in history, it's not going to be known as the sixth mass extinction. So with that being said, the third mass extinction that the amphibians survived was 251 million years ago. This was the Permian. Angie, this is the one where we almost all died off. This one was horrific. 96% of all species were lost. 96%. It's somehow life. Most of them Just were deep in the going. oceans. Yeah. Some on land did survive, but this was called the great dying. And it was like, it, it just insane amounts of death. And what happened was it was just a bunch of natural catastrophe. So that's why I brought this up because it wasn't like a comet striking the earth. We, th- we think with T-Rex in the fifth mass extinction, this was a huge, huge volcanic blast in Siberia mm-hmm. that there was just this ton of dumping of CO2. Uh, then methogenic bacteria responded and they just kept belching out more methane. So like today, global temperatures went up. So much carbon was in the atmosphere. The oceans acidified. They became poisonous and it just like killed off most of life. And it, it, one scientist said it set life back 300 million years, like just wiped it out That's and crazy. started from scratch. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of took that as a warning on where we are today. Like, you know, it's, if you think climate change isn't a big deal, this is the stuff that history has taught us that it should be. All right. Then amphibians survived the fourth mass extinction and the fifth. And then here they are today. So, you know, that's kind of the story of amphibians. Now, specifically giant salamanders, these Chinese, Japanese, and hellbenders are ancient, ancient. So they're ancestors of the Cryptobranchidae, and they diverge from all other amphibians over 170 million years ago during the Jurassic period. Wow. 170 million years. Now, this is the most isolated family tree in amphibians out on a limb by itself. It's his own solitary branch. These things are so unique, so unique. And that's why we should care again, because they're incredibly unique. They're incredibly ancient. They've been around a long time and we really need to to protect and, and learn more about them. They're just, they're, they're phenomenal. Uh, just to wrap this up, there's two species of hellbenders that exist in the United States. There's the Ozark, which we talked about, mm-hmm. that's critical or that's endangered, mm-hmm. and Cryptobranchus alleganius bishopi, 
and they are located in Missouri and Arkansas. And then the eastern hellbender is Cryptobranchus alleganius alleganius, and that's more broadly through this Appalachian region from New York to Georgia and east or westward a little bit in the United States. Okay. All right. So I did find, and I haven't said this one before, the largest amphibian ever. Ooh, I thought you just okay. mentioned it. The, no, the six foot is huge. Yeah. So guess how big this one got? Oh my word. Oh, uh, if six feet isn't big enough, what, 12 feet? I don't know. <laughs> Higher. What? <laughs> this thing. All right. Priana succus. Found in, they found fossils in northern Brazil. Luckily lived 290 million years ago. Okay. Long time ago was 30 feet long or nine meters. Wow. Three stories tall. <laughs> Weighed two tons or close to 2000 kilograms. And it was an amphibian. 4000. Amphibian. Amphibian. 30 how feet. They, how do they know? But they found fossils. They found fossils. Like skeletal I mean, fossils of it. How can you tell from it. a fossil if it's a amphibian or a reptile? Well, it's probably the aquatic structure. The the picture I have here looks like it. It almost it looks like a giant salamander, to be honest. Okay. Just the, the tail shape of the bone structure. The and... shape, except it has this really long snout. Okay. That has like this little barb thing at the end. It's almost like a sawbo a sawfish. Mm, you know, um, that's the picture I have of it. It was a so, land. I must. Be, no, it's aquatic. This looked aquatic. aquatic. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. 30 feet. Everything's huge in South America. Yeah. We had the <laughs> giant rat that was the size of a cow. Like, remember? <laughs> <laughs> or the bear. Like, Somebody the needs biggest... to make a movie with all, like, I know there's Ice Age and obviously kudos yeah. to them. My kids love that show, but yeah. they, need to, they need to, there needs to be something where we can like really get an appreciation for well, these creatures think, that used to live. I know. Well, Leo told us to do a uh, extinct animal podcast. I think Leo should start an extinct animal podcast. Yes. Because there's, there's so many cool oh, ones. There's so, so many cool ones. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So 30 feet long. Like, oh my goodness. It's huge. It's huge. These ancient <laughs> animals. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, that's much bigger than a snot otter. That'd be like, well, like a snot bus or. A, oh my God. I mean, what do you call that? Lisa lived a long time ago, like way ancient. Unlike the, uh, with the elephant bird that was Madagascar that died out like 400 AD or something. Yeah. So yeah, that was huge. All right. Uh, hellbender don't have specific lifespan. I mean, they under human care can live up to 29, 30 years. One study suggests they could live to 50 years, but I think yeah. the general consensus is what 25 to 30. Yeah, and, and maybe obviously in the wild a little bit less, especially depending on the stream health. Uh, they think maybe 12 to 15 years. But I think it's really key to point out that they're very slow growing amphibians mm-hmm. and that it's just totally different than frogs or just things we've covered in the past that it takes them five to eight years to reach their adulthood or breeding sexual maturity. Mm-hmm. Five to mm-hmm. eight years. Yeah, that's a long time. And they Especially for a, an amphibian. Yeah, yeah, it's just totally bizarre. And, yeah. you know, so they have to survive that long from other predators, humans, mm-hmm. 
not clean water, mm-hmm. things like that. And so it's, you know, it's a rough go at it. And then, and just to recap or refresh about amphibian life cycles is amphibians, remember their eggs are laid in the water and hellbenders are the same. And we'll talk about that when we, in more details. There's some, some cool parts mm-hmm. coming up about mm-hmm. uh, how the dads or the fathers are involved. Um, but yes, yeah, so the eggs are laid underwater and then when they're, and then they're hatched and then they have what they call a larva stage, but it's not larva like you think about, uh, as far as a worm. They, they look like a baby amphibian or the hell, mm-hmm. the hellbender looks mm-hmm. like a tiny hell, hellbender, but they're in that phase for two years, pretty small right. in size and easy prey for fish. And then when we're leaving the larval cycle, um, they start to look more like uh, the adult hellbender, but this is still considered the juvenile phase, and that's like for five years. So now that's we're crazy. talking, you know, and they're and now they're getting a little bit bigger, bigger, mm-hmm. medium size, and then they become the adult. They finally, you know, their whole life cycle kind of merges into a reproducing adult when, yeah, they're anywhere from like five to eight years old. So. It's just in that it's just really fascinating and slow. It's like mm-hmm. everything is just slowed down uh for them. And therefore they yeah, they have a kind of a high mortality rate when they're obviously eggs, of course, always have a high mortality rate, but then when they're in this what they once again what they call the larval phase. So really, really fascinating. Um yeah. as far as uh life gen like life cycles and generation intervals right and you know and then trying to rehabilitate them that, right that exactly you have to take into consideration mm-hmm. it's yeah it's it's tough you know some of the physiology too angie you know not only their life cycles fascinating is you know they they do have like simple lungs i read a couple studies where you know one said oh they don't really use them but i do have this which i thought was fascinating and, and i thought it was be fun to talk about is a study in 1973. So in science, but 1973. Mm-hmm. So you're talking a study that was like 50 years ago. And it's always fun when, you know, Angie can attest to this as a scientist, when you go back and read some of these old studies that they did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, even the early 20s and 30s. You know, some of the experiments they ran. Yeah, it's a whole different can of worms. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, they had to type on a typewriter. If anybody knows what that is, you know, there's probably, what's a typewriter? Well, any graphs they had to hand draw, any yeah. graphs or tables. Could, yeah. yeah, just super interesting. Couldn't imagine. But this was, you know, but it, it's, it's a lot of this early science, even though the seventies wasn't that early, but you know, some of the early science in, in the early, late 18th or late 19th century and then going to the 20th. But this was called aquatic respiration and an unusual strategy in the hellbender cryptobranchus alleganius alleganius. So this is like one of the first studies where they, they figured out really how they breathe. Cool. And their question was how can such a large animal whose gas exchange is primarily aquatic survive without gills. Okay. So they don't like fish. These don't come up and breathe like a porpoise or a a turtle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or a mammal in the water and, or, or a turtle or reptile reptile. that's aquatic. Mm 
Yeah. Like, uh, you know, these things stay submerged. So how can they do it without gills? So they said this differs from a lot of other salamanders that it doesn't breathe air through its like nose, through its brachial passage, passages or in its lungs that all of it or almost all of it is through their skin. It's gas exchange in their skin. So that is how they survive. They stay oxygenated with these folds of skin that have special vasculature structures. I, I could have really dorked out on the study. I didn't, but I did read through it and they showed some of the vasculature and these folds and how it absorbs and does oxygen exchange, kind of like how gills work, mm-hmm. but it's just their skin. So they breathe through their skin, which is so crazy. And that's, crazy. that's why they need their little lasagna skin skirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, they, I mean, they do have nostrils and they will, I've read they will inhale a little bit of air, but it's, it's rare. It's only when they come out a little bit. So they, they can survive. They also are, hellbenders are nocturnal, which I think Angie's going to cover a little bit in her behavior. So, and then just one, just to kind of wrap up the breathing through skin, one of the things that, that you think about with amphibians now, not toads, because toads are, are dry skin and, and on land, but frogs mm-hmm. and newts and now salamanders, their skin has to stay moist because they, they do suffer a lot of water loss breathing through their skin. Mm-hmm. You lose quite a bit of moisture, so they have to stay near aquatic, semi-aquatic, you know, misty, you know, wet environments to keep that skin lo- skin hydrated and their bodies hydrated because they do lose a lot through that respiration. Just a couple things. Hellbenders do have eyes, not great vision, but enough to like detect light and stuff. And I thought this was fun. They have light sensitive cells on their bodies. I don't know if you read that. I so, did. Yeah. yeah. Super fascinating. And they think that it helps them hide. So in a stream bed, a shallow stream bed, if any part of their body's outside during the day, they'll feel it and then they'll kind of scoot under to make sure a predator or something can't see them. So I thought that was, was really cool. Yeah. And then I read too that they have a really good sense of smell. Yeah. Right, Which I think is kind Perfect. of fascinating for a water aquatic species. Oh, I know. I know. And this goes back to Jonathan's project with the manatees. And, oh, uh, did this years ago. Like, how do you know if a female manatee is an estrus? Right. And is it hormonal, like through her urine and through her feces? And, like, the males can smell that. And they track her down because there's this... It's the craziest thing with manatees, uh, again, a fascinating species we covered a long time ago, where during the mating season, Ooh, females species, will have what, like- What episode number? <laughs> that was in no the idea. 40s. You that was in so? the 40s okay. or 50s, because I was in New Zealand when we did that one. Yeah. Or in the 30s. It might have been in the 30s, uh, because I remember talking to Jonathan. Oh, I love manatees, yeah. Yeah. And so when the female's in heat, you get this this harem or, or this- gaggle of males like all trying to mate with her at once like 10 of them chasing her and so we were trying to figure out was it hormonal and can you pick it up in the water and i'm like how right i know sharks have a good sense of smell yeah 
Apparently these do. I know. Yeah, hunting. they said that they can uh, smell uh, basically food items, and then they'll mm-hmm. they'll navigate upstream or downstream if they need to, according to the scent molecules that are in the water. So it's when when in relation to hunting, when uh, it's one of their most important senses. Right, right, and they can detect vibrations along their body too. Mm-hmm, like similar to fish, yeah. They're called lateral lines. And mm-hmm, this is making mm-hmm. me wish I would have paid more attention in my ichthyology class or my fish class. <laughs> my fish class. <laughs> Way back it's a, when. It's a, it's a little out of my comfort zone. I'm a little out of my lane when talking about some yeah. of these, some of these amazing adaptations. It's just incredible. Right. But yeah, and I guess that's the thing is like we think of some of this with fish or with sharks, which we've covered on the podcast. But yeah, to find this in, an animal that can be on land for a little bit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or some of them, some salamanders as adults are always on land. The hellbenders always underwater. It's just, it's just incredible. The adaptations. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, nature, they're able, they're able to like figure all of that out. Like we can't let our polluted water make them go extinct. I know, I know, I know, I know. They're too cool. They're too cool. But, and I didn't, once again, being naive and living in the dark and not really knowing much about hellbenders, shame on me. I, it's probably, this is, it's probably one of the worst I've felt about like not knowing (laughs) about the species. I'm like, how, Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. why have I been denying myself this amazing information for so long? But, for those people that maybe do live in Appalachia or are fans of hellbenders, there's a couple of misconceptions uh, that just since we're scientists, we always want to clear those up. Uh, one is that they have um, that salamanders in general or the hellbender can have venomous fangs. Mm. And so it makes people want to kill them when they find them, even though there's never been an amphibian that's ever been known to have a venomous bite. Now we do know there's like poisonous dart frogs that excrete poison mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. none of the, I mean, obviously with the hellbender, there's nothing like that. So if you, if you were line fishing and you caught one, just unhook it and put it back in the water, man. There's not very mm-hmm. many of them left. Um, and I, and I think a lot of parts are federally protected. So people aren't fishing anyways where they live, but still, um, and then for fishermen, which I come from a long line of fishermen for sure, but there's also kind of like a little myth that, um, hellbenders drive bass and other game fish away by eating their eggs. Hmm. So, but scientists that are, have done population counts and trying to learn more about their behavior and physiology can't find any of this type of food stuff in their stomachs. They haven't found bass eggs or mm-hmm. other game fish that fishermen do go after. So it's not really a reason to kill them because they don't even do that as far as right, scientists right. can tell. Well, I mean, they're, what their diet, 90% of it is crayfish. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Crawdads. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> Who doesn't I mean, like lo- little lobster? Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I got, I went down the, um, the YouTube, uh, wonderful hole of a uh, wonderful black hole, a hellbender hole. It was amazing. Yeah, uh, this yeah, past yeah, yeah. week where I, I found myself, <laughs> I think John was like, what are you doing? I'm like, <laughs> I'm watching a hellbender eat a crayfish. And he's like, what? The, what are you doing? 
And I'm like, it's just very zen. It's very peaceful. Just leave me alone. I am, you know. Um, so yeah, they, but it's, it, uh, anyways, it's, it's all good. What did we do before YouTube? My goodness gracious. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We used to uh, go play outside. <laughs> yeah. Well we, well, we used to have to pay somebody to fix our, um, our washing machine or dryer. Now, uh, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I say we, cause you know, yeah. John and I are one, but yeah. now John can just find a YouTube video and fix That's it himself. True. That's true. So very true. Very uh, true. But yeah, no, but, but they'll, they will eat insects and fish, um, and tadpoles. Mm-hmm. But once, once again, they're, they're, they don't go necessarily after, uh, bass caviar or bass eggs. That's no, not no. in there, not in their typical, um, uh, plate. Dinner like menu. you said, it's, it's yeah. 90%, um, crayfish. Crayfish. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't like a, a crayfish, a crawdad? Down there in Louisiana. That's well, right. Well, they're not even Louisiana. In Appalachia. No. In Appal- near not Angie. Anymore, uh, yeah. No, 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 no. So, uh, you know, the cool behaviors, though. I mean, we've kind of already alluded to some of it. Oh, you know, their life yeah. cycle. But, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I yeah. think that, uh, I mean, I love watching them eat in general, but they are nocturnal for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. not, not fully nocturnal, just predominantly and that's when they'll do a lot of their hunting between dusk and dawn but in general during the day in the wild they're a little bit boring they're typically found well they're smart i shouldn't say they're boring they are hiding from predators and or and they're usually hiding under rocks and that's where their flat head and uh and kind of sleek flat body really helps them out because they can just get in those little nooks and crannies and they blend in with the rocks more or less. And they're, although they're very big, you really mm-hmm. can't see that they're there. And so, uh, watching a lot of videos about researchers, uh, that are working to try to, to tag them and learn more about their health and check to make, to see if they have, um, the chytrid fungus that they, they have these amazing rock lifters where it's like, I had never seen this tool before, which makes, I mean, why would you, uh, I don't really go out in streams very mm-hmm. often as, um, but yeah, it's almost like giant pliers to lift these huge, you know, 100, 200 pound, like bold boulders. And streams I saw that. It was up. so cool. It was yeah. so cool. And they yeah. had like a whole team. They're like professionals, uh, because yeah, during the day they're going to be hiding under these rock, uh, under these rocks. Now during breeding season, they'll come out more and I'll talk about some of their behaviors in a second. But in particular, it's really important that they live in kind of a fast moving stream. They prefer to live in areas where the water is moving quickly because that helps the oxygen. Uh, they, they need oxygen to breathe, obviously. And mm-hmm. uh, as Chris mm-hmm. mentioned, they breathe through their skin, their um, tiny capillaries. But when the water is stagnant or m- slow moving, it doesn't recirculate the oxygen and other nutrients that they need. And so they pre- definitely prefer these cool, quick moving mountain freshwater streams and they're pretty much solitary. So they typically keep to themselves unless it's breeding season. And they, when it's not breeding season and they encounter each other, there can definitely be some, some aggression or some fights uh, because the adults are very territorial about their rock or wherever right. they've declared <laughs> their, their rock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is my rock. 
Yeah. Uh, neighbors yelling at each other. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if they're the same size, they'll usually have a little tussle and then both be on their merry way. But if they're in that juvenile stage or, you know, they're, they're, or perhaps even the larval stage, if they're smaller, they will definitely have a high chance of being killed um, and potentially even eaten. So, you know, they, they know to stay away. However, as you're mentioning with manatees, clearly there's something in the water when there's, you know, when it's their breeding season come August or September, uh, September, there must be, and I, I, as far as I could find, I don't think those molecules have been identified, but there's something in the water that changes it up a little bit and makes them want to be obviously more social. And researchers know that they definitely use chemical cues, um, for breeding season and for, for, for other purposes and that they do have an olfactory canal in their snout and it's called the Jacobson's organ. Mm-hmm. And it can taste and test these different chemicals and interpret them to basically figure out if it is breeding season or, or if fish is upstream and then that's where they're, they're, they're prey and they need to move upstream. Uh, and the other fascinating communicate communication technique that they use is if they sense, um, a foreign chemical signal, maybe from a predator, they can, release this milky substance from glandular cells in the outermost layer of skin that can help them. It acts basically like as a little bit of a deterrent and then it can help them escape. So they can use that as kind of like an anti-predator type Mm -hmm. uh, defense defense. As far as yeah, communicating with each other, they really don't for the most part, unless they use these pheromones, which like I said, really haven't been totally identified. Um, to let them know that, okay, you know, it's, uh, it's time to get, um, it's time to be romantic. And that's usually going to happen from anywhere from August to September to October. And they have a really cool mating system, which I think you'll, you will definitely appreciate. Okay. Let's hear it. So first and foremost, different than most salamanders, they, hellbenders have external fertilization. Okay. So, so, yeah, I mean, you see that with some fish and stuff. Frogs do that too, don't they? Mm -hmm. Frogs do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some, yeah, yeah. And so basically during the beginning of breeding season, the male gets those nesting urges and he uh, excavates a nest, probably under a rock, that he will defend from other males. And so when a female approaches, I love this visual, he Gently guides her into his burrow. (laughs) And then she is going to lay the eggs and Mm -hmm. she'll, and it can, it can take her anywhere from one to two, I think even up to three days to like lay the eggs. He basically positions himself along, alongside her and slightly above the eggs and disperses his sperm over them. Mm -hmm. And, after that, he drives her out. Off you go. Okay. Okay. And he stays there guarding dad the, of the eggs. Year. Okay. Okay. So yeah. he's a good dad. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so okay. the female will produce anywhere from about 150 to 450 eggs. Uh, and the incubation period or the maturation for the eggs 
is about 45 to 80 days. Interesting about him. He's a good dad, but he likes to be a good dad to lots of moms. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, why not? He'll, he'll invite, yes, when another female swims by, he will also then invite her into his love chamber and proceed to have her. Hey, genetic diversity Mm -hmm, is a good thing. mm -hmm, It's a good mm -hmm. thing. (laughs) But. Whether he has one baby mama or like three or four, there one study showed up to about almost close to 2,000 eggs in his nest. So, you know, it's going to be wow. from several different okay. females. Um, but he does some really good things when he's in his uh, man cave layer um, with these eggs. And he does. Don't tell me he snacks. He does Don't some, he he snacks does some naughty things. Let's start with the good. So the, okay. the good is he actually. When he's incubating the eggs or just guard, so he guards them mm-hmm. and then incubate for lack of better terms because it's not traditional incubation. But what right, he does right. is a fascinating behavior is he will rock back and forth and, and undulate his, um, his lasagna skin folds. Right. The skin folds. And, yeah. And basically what that does is in his little nest area, maybe under a rock or whatever, that circulates the water and gets more mm-hmm. oxygen to, the, to his yep. babies, yep. to these eggs. Mm-hmm. Super, mm-hmm. super critical and genius, right? I mean, very, very smart. However, if he gets, you know, that burns a lot of calories moving your lasagna. <laughs> I knew he ate them. Why did I know this thing? This male ate some of his babies. I just had but oh. not too many Chris. Research researchers think only like only (laughs) like only like twenty to thirty. Okay, so if you're incubating like whatever forty five to seventy five days, that's like one egg every other day. That's some serious self control. uh, uh, Yeah, there you go. For your boys are bad. You're like, man, we could be salamanders. That could have ate you guys. (laughs) He could still eat you guys. (laughs) I don't know why I knew that. I knew that. Oh my gosh. But, He's not a cassowary dad. Okay. Still not dad of the year no, yet. No, but gosh. Oh, you know, bad. we have to cover emus. I've heard that they're, those dads yeah. do some cool things. Um, okay. Maybe okay. Father's Day. But anyways, so yes. Yeah. Uh, but then, okay. So after incubation period, when they start to hatch and then when, and when it is time for the hatchlings to leave their eggs, they're considered the larvae and they're really tiny. They're like 25 to 33 mil, um, millimeters long. They don't have limbs and they're darkly colored. And at that point in time, they actually do have gill slits. And once they reach the juvenile phase and into the mature phase, they'll lose those gill slits. But just to recap, it's so fascinating that life cycle is they're in this larval phase for two years and the juvenile phase for like five years. And once Mm -hmm. again, they're not going to, you know, participate in any, any adult reproduction until they're five to eight years old. So it's pretty nuts. And, um, that's long. That's long. And for researchers, really, you can only tell a male and female apart because there's no sexual dimorphism when they're adults. There's no like size difference or coloration pattern difference. So really, it's only during breeding season when the male will have a swollen cloaca. Um, that's about it. So I'm sure, um, those that are taken care of under human care with some of the zoos that are, are, are doing a great time breeding them under human care and learning about them. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, 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 I thought of you when I was reading this because I came across, um, a, a thesis, I believe, um, from 2017. So really recent. And the mm-hmm. student, Rachel Settle, 
awesome. She did all this amazing work. She first did a lot of research trying to understand the reproductive physiology and um and then parental care of hellbenders. So she started by uh she's out of Missouri State University and mm-hmm. she started by partnering with the St. Louis Zoo, which is just an incredible mm-hmm. zoo. They've got so much awesome stuff going on there right now. But so she did all this behavioral recording and trying to learn about them and then from watching them under human care and beginning to understand a lot more about this parental care that, she, that, you know, really probably hadn't been reported much. She then went out in the wild and collected video footage of hellbenders and North Fork and in, in the White River, um, a, a pretty common area that they're found in and record all this, all that, all those cool male behaviors as far as parental care for the eggs and the, doing the tail fanning and the lasagna, lasagna skirt fanning. Mm-hmm. And just, mm-hmm, just real mm-hmm. fun stuff. And I'm like, gosh, that'd be such a, that was, that was a cool master's, uh, research and, and yeah, really, I know, you know, really helpful to the literature. Cause there's just, you know, there's stuff out there, but not, you know, not, not a ton. So thank you to Rachel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we appreciate, yeah, we yeah. appreciate that. I love the research. Love it. And the other paper that I found that I wanted to highlight is, um, more for the Eastern hellbenders. Uh, a group went out and did, trying to figure out demographics in um in the southern appalachians in, in like in Tennessee. And basically what they found is the density of hellbenders was because they would tag them and catch them up and uh mm-hmm. the density of them was actually a lot higher than they thought as far as the amount that lived in these certain streams in uh mm-hmm. Tennessee and the national parks. Um and as compared to other places. And I know it maybe seems like not that big a finding, but it just goes to show the national parks are such an important treasure in order mm-hmm. to protect wild species. And that there needs to be legislation not only for our existing national parks to keep them protected, but to add more of them because that's how animal, that's what they need to survive. They need these, you know, uh, these natural yeah. safe areas where they're protected and, uh, you know, and that they're, you know, that they're not, they're not open for business. They're not private lands that the animals can breed and reproduce there because studies show that that's where they are hanging out, which makes sense. Well, and, and I think that's why, you know, it just harkens back to episode 121 with the Endangered Species Act, where we had the, the lawyer, Brent Hartle on from the Center for Biological Diversity, protecting our national parks from exploitation, you know, where we have to stay on guard and we have to keep protecting these wild spaces because they're disappearing. It's not just the United States. I mean, we look at Australia. Last week, you and I were talking about where the fires were and it was in their national parks, yeah. which is what makes it so horrific. But you know, the, these wild spaces in, in Africa, Asia, you know, Australia and here in North America and South America, we need to, to keep fighting and protect it because like you said, it helps species like the hellbender. And with that being said, Angie, you know, overall hellbenders as the total species are near threatened by the IUCN. There has been a huge decline since the 1980s. Well, so in the last 34 yeah, years. But I, I mean, they're near threatened with the population decreasing, but that was last assessed in 2004. 
I know. And that's where it's like, I was thinking about, you know, looking up IUCN again, and I, I always go and look for numbers outside of that. You know, IUCN can only do so much. I mean, they're the gold standard that, that we look at, but you know, th- we do have to look at other sources too, you know, where populations are concerned because IUCN can't do it all by themselves. Now, then looking at that, like you said, 2004, since 2011, the Ozark hellbender has been considered endangered here in the United States, protected by the Endangered Species Act. So going back to Brett Hartle's interview, which was amazing, a, a different look at conservation. Yeah, I think that's one so of their our most estimated, downloaded episodes ever of all time so far. was the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. It was a good episode. And less than 600 of them left. So the Ozark subspecies of the hellbender, the Eastern, they, they don't have any census data. I couldn't find it. Um, there's actually a good article, National Geographic that I'll link up there on conservation of the hellbenders. So I'll link that for everybody to read, but they're in serious decline. Yes. And so, well, and at least like Tennessee has moved forward, uh, listing it as a species of great con- concern and conservation need within their mm-hmm. state. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, people, you know, different areas are doing movements to add more protection. I know in Pennsylvania, there was a big push to make it their, um, uh, their state amphibian and just to draw more awareness mm-hmm. to it in the local schools. I know there was, uh, I was reading there was kind of a controversy. There was another one and they went back and forth, mm-hmm. but all, you know, there's no such thing as negative publicity. So what, whatever gets people talking more about hellbenders and the water that they live in and keeping the waters, safe and clean uh is mm-hmm. that's a conversation that needs to be had right and so before i i jump into tips for people to practice good water habits what's some of the organizations yeah so i have or- um two so i know we have a ton of hurt fans and so i found a really cool group called the southeast partners in amphibian and reptile conservation sea park uh, and they can be found at cpark.org. That's S-E-P-A-R-C.org. And CPARC is an organization of scientists, naturalists, government representatives. So that's pretty cool. And then just citizens mm-hmm. that are devoted to conserve, that understand the crisis that amphibians are under. And of course, reptile populations as well in the southeastern United States. And they have a lot of different species that they highlight. And one of them is the hellbender. And so they have a Facebook group, which we'll put the link on our show notes called hellbender salamander conservation in the American South. But they have what is known as a hellbender task team. And which is a working group that collaborates all these groups of people together um, to figure out how to save these guys. And they have, you know, big mm-hmm. overreaching goals and, um, and, trying to figure out how to help educate people and how to uh, utilize science and how to do land restoration and just really cool things. And so, uh, and so we'll put sea parks information on there. Um, that once again, they do have a hellbender task team focusing just on um, hellbenders. But the other group that I really want to highlight that is just straight up hellbenders. If you are just, if you want your feed, hellbenders all day and all night, which who doesn't, uh, or understanding that your donations would go straight to the hellbenders, um, that's going to be 
this group called Help the Hellbender, and they can be found at helpthehellbender.org. And it's pretty cool. It's uh, through Purdue University. They partner with zoos and other organizations um, to help hellbenders in Indiana um, and obviously across the region. And they, by working with um, breeding under human care, they want to increase the population and then, of course, you know, do do reintroductions in the wild. And they also, of course, are big educators about getting people loving, you know, what we're doing on this podcast today is getting people that maybe weren't familiar with hellbenders mm-hmm. falling in love with them. The hellbenders should actually be called heaven benders because they're so amazing, right? <laughs> uh, they are, they so, are. So yeah. And obviously follow both of those groups on Facebook or um, Instagram and, and we'll, we'll put their information up on the show notes and, once again, I just, I love applauding and finding these smaller groups that don't get as much, um, you know, probably don't get as right. much attention that don't get as much, uh, perhaps bells and whistles as some of the organizations that cover maybe the more gre- gregarious species. But I definitely think that if you are, you know, a person that loves amphibians or reptiles, man, this hellbender is just so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. It's really cool. It is, it was a fun species to, to learn about this week and just some final conservation tips on how to kind of help keep our aquatic streams healthy and some of the things you can do in your household. The number one advice we have to give is switch to less polluting household products. So shop, shop smart. So try to avoid detergents with phosphates. Cleaning products with triclosan and antibacterial soaps. It all harms aquatic life. Yeah. So when you, you use that in your sinks, you wash it down and then it, it goes, you know, a lot of places in the United States and elsewhere in the world, it goes into our streams and can harm aquatic life. Vinegar also, and water. be careful in your, that's what we use. Yeah. That's a and good once one. Once you get used to be the careful. smell, it doesn't bother you anymore. <laughs> It's like the clean yeah, smell, vinegar. Rotten eggs. <laughs> yes. But be careful in your kitchen. It's interesting, Angie. I read this travel blog from this South African in New York, and he's like 10 things I learned about Americans. He couldn't believe how much water we waste because we let our faucets run constantly. In South Africa, they consider that criminal because they're in such horrific sure. drought and they're mm-hmm. in this crisis. He just couldn't get over it. So, you know... When you wash dishes, if you use the faucet, you know, you can you fill up both sides of the sink. Also, your fruits and vegetables, you know, don't let the water run. Fill up some water and rinse them all and then let it go. So that will save some gallons. And then the final thing just this week is dispose of all chemicals properly. Things like, you know, paint, turpentine, oil, recycle your oil, take it to a local garage yeah, or well, something. Do not pour that in the A lot of times we'll have like yeah. chemical roundups. So we always save ours mm-hmm. um, for when that happens. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure obviously yeah. if you got online, if you needed to get rid of something, um, there's always yeah. a place that'll take don't it. Pour yeah, it no, gosh, no. Don't pour it down the sink. Please don't pour it down the sink or in the dirt outside because well, that can I mean, le- most leach places down in the groundwater. Yeah. water and yes, they clean it and filtrate it and do, you know, and they make it clean again. So don't make their job mm. harder by putting more junk in it. Yeah. 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 And some of that does leak through. So anyways, those are tips of the week. Great week. It, you know, a lot of positive stuff coming out about the hellbender. We just need to keep watching them and supporting them. 
And then next week we've got an amazing creature coming. We've got an amazing one next week. Another oh, one. I'm excited. Yeah. Definitely fall definitely falls into some of uh Angie's criteria, so that's my hint. Yes. It's or, gonna be a fun one. Yeah. It's gonna be a fun one. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again for listening and uh just spread that hellbender love. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.